If you are here this morning, welcome to our family. We are glad that you are here. We're in the middle of this, I say middle, it's, it's been quite a journey through Ephesians. And uh, we have embarked on this journey for some time. And we've made it 30 weeks into it. And Ephesians is this incredible letter in which Paul is pouring out his heart to probably the most educated of all the churches that he has. And he's given them these deep instructions. And he's writing from a house arrest in Rome. And he's given them these deep instructions. And he's calling them to this this way of life that is that they know, but they are, are called to live as this powerful light in the world. They become the hands and feet of his ministry. And so this letter is true, and it's deep, and it's real, and it hits on all these high notes. In fact, we're getting ready to hit a stretch where we talk about husbands and wives and slaves and masters and deep, real things. But we've been, for the past four weeks, slowly working our way through the first six verses of this, this book because it is a deep and challenging things that Paul is calling us to. So I want to give you just a quick snapshot of where we've been because this morning he's going to tie all these things together as he begins the process of trying to move on to a new subject, right? He's going to do it kind of slowly, but I want you to see how they've been because we've been looking a week at a time at like one verse, and they're all going to kind of come together this morning. But chapter 5 begins with Paul making this beautiful yet incredibly impossible call. He challenges the Ephesians and therefore you and I as followers of Christ to become imitators of God. He says, therefore, you become imitators of God, right? He calls us to be reflections and uh, kind of disbursements of who God is. And it's impossible because we can't do it on our own, yet it's beautifully possible through the Holy Spirit. And we, we explored what that looked like, becoming an imitator of God in the way that we love and the way that we forgive and the way that we behave. And in the following week, he takes us into a picture of what that really truly begins to look like, things that take place in our heart and things that come out of our mouths. And he talks about how imitating God and having this heartbeat for the things that, uh, that God has a heartbeat for become incredibly practical. He talks about the idea that among us there not, must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or in greed. And we broke those down. And we talked about the biblical definitions of sexual immorality, which is any sexual activity that takes place outside of the sanctity of marriage. right? And that marriage from a biblical definition is between one man and one woman in which they become one flesh. And now we're called to fight against impurities. It creeps its way into our marriages, into our lives, and against things like pornography and, and poisonous thoughts. And we explored the, the heart cancer that's greed, that says essentially to God, your promises and what you have for me are not enough. I deserve and I want more, whether that's physical or sexually or, or just materially. And then we begin to look at the next list he gives us, which is not just what takes place in our heart, but then among us there has to be a hint of things that come out of our mouths that are poisonous to the culture. That there should be no obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking. We, we defined what that meant and what those looked like and what Paul was getting at, that the words of a follower of Christ should be giving life and not taking it. And with our words, we oftentimes take life. But we should be givers of life, right? And we explored what that meant. And then last week, Paul kind of pulls these back together and he says, I want to tell you why these are so vitally important is because they have real consequences. And he says, no unrepentant person that's engaging in sexual immorality or impurity or greed is going to inherit the kingdom of God. And we talked about repentance and confession and the call to like want to purge things in our life because they have true real consequences and how the world will try and deceive us. It will tell you that surely God didn't say those things. He doesn't mean that. Right? God in his word surely didn't say that sexual immorality is wrong or that, that pornography is not okay or that poisonous thoughts and, and, and chasing material things is bad. Surely God 
didn't say that. The world will tell you to fight for yourself or seek pleasure. If it makes you happy, do it. We look at that picture through Adam and Eve in the garden and how the serpent makes that same claim to Eve and Adam saying, surely God didn't say that it will kill you. We explored that great deception. And then we talked about this, this warning that he begins to give us about not partnering with the world, locking hands and, and finding our hearts loyal to the world and the things of the world. Well, this morning, we're going to look at all that together in these next few verses in which Paul is going to basically lay out this great contrast, this great contrast of who we were before Christ and who we are now. And so we're going to look at all those verses together. We're going to read them together, but we're going to focus on 8 through 10 because I want you to see that these were all meant to be read together, not studied just over the course of five weeks, but in one movement, Paul is leading us from this is who we're called to be and this is who we can be but not until we meet and know Christ. And he's going to set up this great contrast. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at 8 through 10, but we're going to read it all just so you can see it in its context. And then we're going to explore just how this contrast plays out in our life, who we were, who we are, what that, and what that means for how we live. So let's take a moment. Let's just pray together quickly, and then we will dive straight into Ephesians 5, uh, into this deep and rich and, and very true um, text. Lord, what a privilege to open your word. What a privilege it is to be able to be in a place that honors your truth. Lord, we hold your word in incredibly high regard. It is not a guidebook for our life. It is your very word poured out for us. As we say each week, it's the theopunestos. It is the, the very breath of God. Greek literally means that your scripture is God's word breathed out. And so, Lord, we don't take it lightly. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, God, we want to, to hold it in authority. We want it to not be a, a simple instruction letter, but more a love letter poured out by which we base our entire lives and thoughts and movements on. And so the things that are in this letter, while hard, are powerful and true and good because you are good. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask it, the Lord to teach you. Just something simple. God, teach my heart. Right? Just ask the Lord to give you something this morning that you can hold on to and walk away with. It's his word. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you. Uh, we do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. And so we want the spiritual lives of the folks in our community to matter. Everything that unfolds on a Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for them. Even if you don't know them or you're here for the first time or it seems a little odd, just humor us. Pray for the people around you. Care about their heart. Ask God to move in them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. Everything here is for your glory. So we ask you to teach our hearts, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior, and our Redeemer. Amen. So I'm going to read Ephesians 1 all the way down through 10, but I want you to pay special attention to 8 through 10 as we get there, but I want you to hear it in context because it makes much more sense. 8 and 10 will make much more sense when you hear it coupled with what comes before. So this is chapter 5. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love. 
Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. Here's where we're going to focus today. For you were once darkness, but you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. So Paul sets all these things up to get us to verse 8 in which he says, there's something majestically different in you now. These things are who you were. Now remember, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to a gathered group of believers, right? This is not a a letter to Gentile non-believers. This is a letter to Jewish and Gentile Christians, people that have already given their life and their heart to Christ, and he's reminding them of this great truth. And he lays out this contrast, and you hear it right away. He says all these things leading up to this, and he gets to verse 8, and he says, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Do you hear that contrast? And I want you to pay attention to it because it's really important. He says something very specific. He says, you were once darkness. He doesn't say, you were once living in darkness. You once did dark things. He says, you, pre-Christ, were darkness. Now, this is important for you to understand theologically and for us to grasp because a lot of times we like to think that we are inherently good people that do some bad things. Scripture paints a very different picture. I had a conversation with a guy years and years ago, and we were talking about, I think we were talking about poverty and some other things that were happening around the world, and I said the sentence, I said, the world is a very dark and broken place. And he said, man, I hear you say that, but I don't agree. He said, essentially, I believe that the world is inherently good. Now, there are some bad people, like Hitler, he was terrible. Stalin, awful. But most of us are really good. We just make some bad choices. And I said, man, I I like the sound of that too. I want to believe that I'm inherently good. But the problem is, is that Scripture actually teaches something wholly different. Scripture actually teaches very strongly that we are fully dark. That we don't engage in dark behaviors and that makes us dark. Like we're good, we do a few bad things, therefore we're sinful. No, we are deeply sinful and the behaviors that we do are an expression of who we are. And what Paul sets this up essentially saying is that you were once darkness. He tells the Colossians that they were actually enemies of God because of their minds actions that flowed out of that. So I started thinking about this contrast, right, which for most of us, we want to soften it. Hey, you were once doing some bad things, some things turned around, now you're doing some good things. Things are on the upswing. But it's actually much more stark than that. You were darkness. 
Now, here's the important thing is that from 5, 1 through 7, he tells us what that darkness looks like. Because of who you were, what came out of you were these things. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, poisons from your heart and out of your mouth. Right? Not because you just kind of got a little bit engaged with the world, but because it was who you are. You were fully Now, we've talked about this for four weeks now, so it shouldn't be any surprise, but it's an important place to start because this is where the great contrast begins. So the first part of this is, you were once darkness. You are now light. Now, if you could take the gospel and you could succinctly sew it up into one sentence, this is it. You were once darkness, you are now light. So how did the Ephesians become light? Did they all of a sudden just decide they're no longer going to engage in these behaviors? Like, hey guys, let's all get together. Nobody do anything sexually outside of your marriage. Don't think anything bad. And don't be greedy. We're going to nail this thing. No more four-letter words. No more bad talking. Don't joke about each other, right? And be nice. And they were like, yeah, it's a great idea, man. Let's do that. And they all do it. And it's like, man, you guys were once bad. Now you're good. No. The answer is, of course not. Paul writes this letter to them because they are still struggling with this. He didn't write it to the church. He's like, he didn't say, hey, I know none of you guys deal with this, but I'm going to waste some pages, papyrus, some ink, and I'm going to send it to you anyway. He's writing to the church because they struggle with it. They're in the midst of their struggle, yet he still calls them light. There's something fascinating that's happening here, right? So how did the Ephesians become light? Was it because they rid themselves of immorality and greed and impurity? It couldn't be the case because Paul's writing them to tell them they've got to get it out of their lives. So how do you become light if you're still engaged in behaviors that are dark? Well, this is the gospel and it's beautiful picture, right? The Ephesians did nothing. They did most literally nothing. But that's the incredible picture of God's grace. It's actually the beauty of it. Right? And he actually tells them that in Ephesians 2. If you remember way back when, it seems like an eternity ago that we were in Ephesians 2, he basically says this, But because of God's great love for us, he who is rich in mercy made us alive in Christ even when we were fully dead in our sins or transgressions. And transgressions is in our moral breaking of God's law. So while we were fully dead and could do nothing, God did something great for us. And he goes on in verse 8 to say this, It is by grace that you have been saved through faith and nothing from yourself. It is God. Not by your works, no one gets to boast. So this is essentially what he's told them in chapter 2. You did nothing. But because of God's extravagant love for you, while you were fully dead, fully dark, not just doing bad things and dark things and making mistakes, but fully poisoned of the heart, completely dead and dark. Jesus, Jesus came and he rescued you in what you could not do for yourself because he loves you and he cares about you and he gave his life for you. And so he says, as you put your faith and trust in him, you do what you could not do for yourself or he does what you could not do for yourself. This is the picture of light and darkness. We try our best to work our way out of darkness. For most of us, all of us, it only leads to more darkness. There's nothing you can do. 
It's the beauty of grace. And so this is the great contrast. You were once darkness, you are now light. Now, how do we know that it's all the Lord? Well, if we just even ignore Ephesians 2, Paul tacks it right on the end. He says, you are now light in the Lord. See, you're not light in you. You didn't do anything. You didn't work your way out or perform yourself or do whatever it is. You did not do. You are not light in yourself. You are not light in your behavior. You are not light in your actions. You are light in and only because of Christ. He is the only light. John actually tells us that. He says the world is darkness and the light pierces through the darkness. He, Jesus, is the light of life. In other words, there is no light that isn't Christ. And therefore, if you are light or I am light, it is only because of Jesus. We are light in the Lord. We are not light because we are holding ourselves together, because we are the church, because we are building our actions into one great like lighthouse. We are nothing. The only reason we're light at all is in the Lord. Now, these are things you know that we've talked about a lot, but they're important to understand this contrast. You were darkness, you are now light. And you did nothing. But God loves you, and he rescued you, and he redeemed you. And so then Paul goes on and says this, right? This is the next big piece. So live as children in the light. Now this is the big call, right? The big call is to begin to live who you are. He doesn't say, now now that this is happening, you have a different set of behaviors to do. He basically says, live who you are. So if you are the light, you are light in the Lord, then begin to live who you are. And who are you? And he gives a list there. He says, these things are the fruit of the light, which is a weird mixed metaphor, but that's Paul's beauty, right? He says, these are the fruit of the light. Righteousness, goodness, and truth. So what's the fruit of the darkness? Immorality, impurity, greed. What's the fruit of the light? Goodness, righteousness, truth. What's goodness? Goodness essentially is a kind spirit that wants to be a blessing to others. Righteousness is moral uprightness. Think of that as the opposite of sinfulness. Truth is the consistency of action and words. It's the same inside and out. Are those behaviors that you are or can do? There's something really interesting here. If the definitions of darkness are impurity and immorality and greed, then what are the definitions of light? If those are goodness and righteousness and truth, are they definitions of behaviors? Do you do goodness? Do you do righteousness? Do you do truth? Not really. They're actually, if you're paying any attention to Scripture, right, they are definitions of who God is. So think about this. I kind of jotted a few down. They're all over the scripture. But Psalm 100 verse 5 says this. God is good and his love endures forever. Okay? Psalm 146. God is righteous in all of his ways and towards all he has made. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the three things that Paul gives us are not characteristics that we do. They're not actions. They're actually characteristics of the nature of who God is. And he says, that's who we are. He says, God is good. God is righteous. And God is truth. 
You know who you are in the light? You are good and you are righteous and you are true. Why? Because you did, no, did it? No. Because this is the beauty of the gospel. God's spirit dwells in us. And he has made you who he is. He has exchanged your sinfulness for his righteousness. Right? He tells us that in the book of Corinthians. For God made him who had no sin so that in him we might fully become the righteousness of God. So the, light, the fruit of the light are the characteristics and nature of God, which is who you are. Not how you perform, but who you are. You are good, not because of your actions, but because God is. You are righteous, not because you'll never make a mistake, because God is righteous. You are true, not because your heart and your mouth will always line up perfectly, but because God redefines you. When we talk about being a new creation in Christ, we're talking about the indwelling Holy Spirit, not the fact that you now, because you've been saved, have a moral, perfect life and record. He's writing to the Ephesians that have blown it. He's literally telling them, you are living in immorality and impurity and greed. Stop it. Stop the obscenity talk and the coarse joking. Quit acting like the world. And in the same breath, he says, you're not the world. You are goodness and righteousness and truth. Who you were is not who you are. You were darkness. You are light. Live who you are. And this is fascinating to me because we've already been given these things. They're not things we have to pursue. They are things that God has dwelled in us when he filled us with his Holy Spirit. You are good because Christ is good. Not because you perform good and you act good and you say all the right things, but because his Spirit dwells in you and you are the embodiment of God's indwelling Spirit. That means you are no longer darkness. You're good. And you're going to be full of mistakes, but your Spirit has been redeemed that you were once immoral and impure and greedy, but now you've been exchanged from darkness to light and you are righteous. You are morally upright, not because you're never going to make a mistake, because God has rebuilt the structure of your soul. And you are true. And I think the thing that I find the most fascinating about this is that this is who we are as gathered believers. I don't feel that way, right? I feel deeply sinful all the time because my nature is still that. But if I let the enemy whisper those things to me, Trip, this is who you are. You're never going to amount to anything. You continue to make the same mistakes. You're a failure. And I begin to listen to those words. I exchange the truth of God for a lie where God says, no. Yeah, that's who you were, but no, it's not who you are. I dwell in you now. You are mine. I've covered your disaster with my life. What was horrible, I have made good. What was a lie, I have made true. What was sinful, I have made righteous. So live that way. This is who you are. Live it. So live as children of the light. And then he has this little tag on verse that I find really interesting in verse 9 or whatever that is there. He says, he says, essentially, right, you're righteous in truth and find out, verse 10, what pleases the Lord. You know what's fascinating about that is that his entire letter tells us what pleases the Lord. It's not about a quest to search and figure it out. All of Scripture actually tells us, but Ephesians especially tells the church, do what pleases God, and here is what pleases God. But what I love about this verse is that it, it's almost like he's saying, make it your life's adventure and quest to pursue the things that please the Lord. 
So when you lived in darkness, who did you seek to please? Two things. One, we always seek to please ourselves. The world will tell you it's actually okay. Do whatever makes you happy. And we seek to please ourselves. I, I, I want to collect things and store up for myself things. I want to get recognition from things that I do. I want to be honored. I want to be exalted. I want people to appreciate me. I want to seek pleasure and glory for me. The idol of the person in darkness is actually themselves, right? In fact, the great call of the gospel is death to self. That's the the circle of the gospel. But the reality is, is that the great kind of movement of the darkness is directed towards me. I seek to please me. Right? If I'm not happy, I'll end my marriage. If I don't like this, I'll do something that I like better. I will destroy somebody else to take my foothold at a place higher. Get what you can get in this world because no one will give it to you. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Everything is a me-driven circle. So we seek to please ourselves. But we also really seek to please people. Right? We seek their affection, we seek their attention, we seek their response. We gauge our own value on how they respond to social media posts. We do a lot of things to please the people around us. We cut our words, we cut our morality. We let go of what we know to be true because we don't want to be shouted down by the world. We hold our thoughts and our ideas back. We hold truth back because we don't want to displease people. And so most of our life is spent scrambling, scrambling to make sure that we please the people around us. We perform for them. We give them what they need. We don't hurt them or hurt their feelings. And while some of that is true, most of it is done out of a place of brokenness, not out of a place of just not wanting to hurt somebody's feelings. It's, I don't want them to think this about me. So we perform for them, right? We put on our best. We show the sides of ourselves that are the most acceptable and we hide the other things because we have made our life's quest to figure out what pleases me and pleases people. The true person who lives in the light seeks only to please the Lord. Like what brings honor and glory to God? That's what Paul's saying. Find out what pleases the Lord. You know what it is. So make it your life's quest to pursue those things. What can the world do to me? Right? What, what could they possibly do to me? My heartbeat should be, God, what brings you honor and glory? And if it brings me ridicule and shame, I'll take it. Because you took on all those things for me. Right, the God that made the stars and breathed life into your lungs and as Psalm 139 says, knit you together. He allowed himself to be crucified. To be hung on a Roman instrument of mockery and embarrassment and torture and humiliation. To be spit upon by the very creation that he made. To be humiliated. A God who could wipe out humanity with the blink of an eye, the snap of a finger. A God who could thrust his power and his dominion over the world hangs in full vulnerability and humiliation to take on your grotesque darkness and mine. And I won't be inconvenienced by him. I won't stand up for what I know to be biblical truth because I don't want to be embarrassed or shouted down. 
or truthfully, I just don't want the hassle. I just want the things. And I want the praise, and I want the accolades, and I want people to like me. And I know that if I say this one thing, I'm going to turn half of this group against me. So I won't. And I'll tell them what they want to hear. Our life's goal as followers of Christ should be find out what pleases the Lord. Because when you begin to engage in a life that pleases the Lord, what God does is he begins to bring value and joy to everything else around you. He begins to unfold this richness in your life. Not like a a, a reflection of like, if you give $10, God will give you a million. That's garbage. It's a lie. Usually you give 10 and God takes 100. (laughs) I was only going to give 10. He's like, I know. I was telling you to give 100. The truth of the matter is, is that when we begin to do things that honor the Lord, God then begins to bless in ways that are immeasurable and countless. I begin to find value. I begin to find joy in a place that there shouldn't be joy. I begin to find depth in a place that should show shallowness. I begin to find joy in giving. Like it brings my heart goodness when I'm generous. I begin to find joy when I give myself away when I give our lives away, when I find things that honor the Lord, when I stand up for his truth and righteousness because I am that. And God blesses my heart and I feel good because I spoke truth into a world that is dark. This is what he's telling the Ephesians. He's saying, you essentially as the church, this is your call. You were darkness. You are light. Live who you are and pursue me. Like literally chase the things that honor me. So this morning as we walk out of this place, this becomes part of the great challenges. First, you got to know who you are. You're not a series of behaviors. You're not a sum of your biggest mistakes, and you're certainly not the sum of all the things you do right. You've actually been given a whole new label in Christ. You are now light. And when you've surrendered your life and your heart to Jesus, you have gone from not doing darkness, but being darkness. To being light. And that light is not because you did anything on your own. You don't deserve any of it. But in his lavish, incredible grace, he has made you something wholly new. And that wholly new actually comes with a set of things that you are. Not that you have to work for or earn or demonstrate. You already are these things. Because God is them. He is good. He is righteous. He is true. And he has exchanged those things into your life. You are righteous and good and true, not because of your behaviors, but because you have been covered by Christ. So don't let the world or the enemy tell you anything else. When the enemy wants to tell you you're a liar and you're a phony and you're a fraud, you get to say, yes, I was. And I may have behaviors that mess up, but that's not who I am, all right? It's not who I am. When the enemy wants to tell you that your life is inconsistent, that it's untrue, that you're a hypocrite, you can say, yes, I was. It's not who I am. I'm true. The enemy will tell you all you're going to do is amount. You make the same mistake over and over again. You are sinful, and you can say, yes, I was, but it's not who I am. This is what he's telling the Ephesians. So go live those things. And make your life's pursuit, right, to find out what pleases the Lord. Chase it. Chase it down and live into it. And what God will do is begin to add this richness and depth to your life that is inexplainable. 
Next week, what Paul's going to begin to do is going to begin to shift these ideas to some very specific things. How do these translate into marriage? What does it mean for a husband to love his family? What does it mean for a wife to submit to her husband? And how has the world poisoned those beautiful ideas, stolen them from Scripture, and told us that somehow that's a bad thing? We're going to see what the picture that looks like. We're going to talk about slaves and masters. We're going to talk about the armor of God and willingness to fight for things that are real and true. The letter just gets better from here. But this is the anchor point in which we're building upon. You were once darkness. You are now light. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering in this place, the the truth that comes in just your word. We recognize, God, that these are not things we do on our own. We will not perform our way out of our darkness. It is only by your grace through Christ. That if we put our faith and our hope in Jesus, Lord, we are transformed from darkness to light. We have been given new characteristics and qualities in Christ that are ours, that are marked and named for us that we are no longer defined by the world and by its sinful desires, Lord. We are marked by goodness and righteousness and truth. So let us live into those things. Don't let us begin to live and begin to believe the lies that the enemy will tell us. But let us live into those things. And let us find a life that pursues you, truly pursues things that honor the Lord. Find what pleases the Lord. God, let us live that way. So as we close our time in worship this morning, Lord, I pray that you would make these things powerful and true in our heart. They would ring out as we set our lives on a new course, a course that is anchored in light and not darkness. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning. Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Sing it again. Who am I? Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Oh, his love for me. Who the sun sets free. Oh, it's free.
So like always, the challenge is, how do I begin to walk out of this room and begin to live those truths, right? Like if everything just takes place here and stays here, we're missing the movement of God's word. So how do I take what God is pressing onto my heart and live it out there? That's the great call. But go from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to understand who you are in Christ. You were darkness. You are light. Live the light that you are and make your life's pursuit to chase the things that honor and glorify him. Go in peace.